The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer, W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this evening, we always need to make sure that we're prepared to focus on the Word of God, that we are in right relationship with God in terms of not only salvation, but in terms of our ongoing fellowship, our walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. Whenever the believer sins, he doesn't threaten his salvation, as we'll see from our study this evening, but it does uh, break our fellowship with God. Our rapport is uh, fractured because of sin. We're out of fellowship. The ongoing sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit, which is called the filling of the Spirit, the ongoing walk by means of the Spirit, is breached, and the recovery is simply by admitting or acknowledging to God our sins, 1 John 1, 9. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that we have the privilege to have your word before us, that this is the completed canon of Scripture and that you have given us a sufficient revelation of yourself that addresses every issue in life. And Father, we thank you that you have also given us your Holy Spirit who indwells us and under his filling ministry he takes your word and uses it to mature us, to strengthen us and to create in us the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we continue our study of these foundational truths of Christianity, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and see how they apply to our life and to our thinking, that we may think in a way that glorifies you, that we may think biblically about our life, and that we may continue to advance in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have been involved in a series for the last uh, nine or ten weeks 
where we've been looking at the foundation for the Christian truth, for Christian life, the foundation for life. And tonight I want to wrap this introductory series up. The focus has really been on foundational doctrines, the foundational teaching. Next Sunday we're going to move to a new series. We're going to move from the foundation for life to the foundation for living, shifting gears from the uh, 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 basic foundation to that which is the foundation for Christian life. Now, as we review what we've done the last few weeks, we've been focusing on salvation. We started off talking about the Bible and how the Bible presents God's unified viewpoint on every area of life. And in that, we saw that the Bible presents a view of life that is built upon an absolute principle, and that is that God has revealed himself to us in his word, and he has revealed that there is one and only one way to have a relationship with him, and that this has been true throughout history from the Garden of Eden up to the present. There's always been one and only one way to have a relationship with God. God is the creator. God defines how man can, on the basis for which man can have a relationship with him, how man can uh, maintain fellowship with him. So we have gone through the basics related to uh, God, his essence, the Trinity. We've gone through the basics related to salvation the last couple of sessions. We had a little hiatus last Sunday while people were running all over uh, Texas trying to avoid uh, the hurricane, but now we're all back together to wrap this up. Now, I remember when I was initially saved, I don't remember a whole lot about it, but I remember the event. I was six years old, and most of us don't have a whole lot of memories, but that, uh, that's a significant event. And I remember when my uh, parents sat me down one afternoon after church and explained the gospel to me, and I was quite excited about it. I thought that was really neat, that salvation was just a free gift that Jesus Christ did everything for us, and all we had to do was believe in him, and we would have eternal life. And I remember uh, them telling me that, and I remember running down the street to tell my best friend, thinking, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. Now, as time went by, and many of you can relate to that story, whether it happened when you were 6 or 8 or 18 or, or 28, there usually comes a time later on as you begin to understand the gospel where sometimes you wonder if you're really saved. How can I be sure? Now, some of us, and I remember this many times, and I know this is probably true for uh, many of you, even though you may not want to admit it, you would hear a really good gospel presentation, and you'd say, Lord, I just want to make sure, you know. Let me remind you, I believe this. I just want to make sure that, that this is going to take, because... We don't want to make any mistakes here. And so there are periods where we sort of reaffirm in our own thinking that we do believe the gospel. Because there are times in the course of, I think, every Christian's life when you well, you just want to make sure. Sometimes you have doubts. Sometimes you're, you're not really sure. You want to go back and reinvestigate the foundation of Christian thought and Christian doctrine. Sometimes you go through a period of several years where you may not care a whole lot about your spiritual life. Perhaps you go through a period where it has no priority whatsoever, and you know you're away from the Lord, and you know you're, uh, you get involved in sin and carnality. And sometimes there are people who get involved in some pretty rank carnality, and they 
pretty much shock themselves into how depraved they can be. And they just wonder, well, have I just gone a bridge too far in terms of the grace of God? Have I lost my salvation? And then there's always folks who have grown up in uh, church situations and, or maybe they watched some television preacher or they heard some evangelist who was threatening them that they could lose their salvation, that you can commit such and such a sin, and if you have lived in such a way for a length of time, you were never saved, and, or maybe you lost your salvation. So uh, people often ask the question, how do I know I'm saved? Can I have a sure and certain knowledge that I'm saved? Can I say with 100% confidence that no matter what I do, no matter what happens in the rest of my life, I know with certainty that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And the Scripture says that you can know with certainty that you can go to heaven. There's no doubt about it. There's no reason to doubt. There's no question to doubt. And so we have to understand this in light of what the Scripture says. So we're going to go back to the Bible. I want to look at various passages that we have in the Scripture so that we can understand the certainty of our salvation. As part of God's revelation, He has clearly explained to us the nature of who man is, that we're created in the image and likeness of God, that man was originally created uh, perfect with perfect righteousness, but when Adam disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, sin entered into the human race. And this sin is a quantitative thing that caused spiritual death to spread throughout the human race. And so we looked at the last few weeks at the barrier, the sin barrier, and the different components of the sin barrier. And I want to review this because when we talk about this question of knowing that we're saved and how can we have uh, an assurance of salvation, and is this doctrine called the doctrine of eternal security actually true? Eternal security is the view that once you're saved, you're always saved, that you can't do anything to lose it. And there's always folks who want to come along. They're threatened by grace that that somehow you just might um, take that for granted. And guess what? You probably will. And there's nothing wrong with that in, in some sort of absolute sense. I mean, everybody will. I'm not saying that licentiousness or taking advantage of the grace of God is is a right thing to do, but it is a normal thing to do in almost everybody's experience because that's the nature of real grace. And we looked at sin itself, and we saw that the sin problem between God and man is composed of different elements. Now, those first three elements, which uh, have an X through them, have to do with the nature of sin itself, which uh, is the violation of God's character, and that was resolved by unlimited atonement. The second element was the penalty of sin, which was spiritual death, and that penalty was paid for by Christ on the cross. That was resolved by redemption. And then the third element had to do with God's own character, that because God is perfectly righteous, and that is his, the absolute standard of his character, and therefore he cannot have a relationship with anyone unless they have that same level of righteousness, that his character, his righteous standard must be satisfied, his justice must be satisfied. And that was taken care of by what the Bible refers to as propitiation. 
These are solid biblical words that you will find in good translations of the, of the Bible. Unlimited atonement, unlimited redemption, unlimited propitiation. And those doctrines are provided for every human being at the cross. But that doesn't save anybody. Because it's, that's the objective work of Christ on the cross, but there's the subjective application. In other words, that's what Christ paid for on the cross that took care of the basic problem, but it has to be applied to each of us individually before there is real salvation. Now, as we look at this issue of salvation... What I'm going to show you this evening, or part of what I'm going to show you, is that when you really understand the problem of sin, that it is a constitutional defect, man is not uh, ill, man is not sick, man is not crippled, man is dead, the Scripture says. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. There is a constitutional defect in our nature that has been passed down from generation to generation, that when we truly understand the, the depths of depravity and the nature of our sinful problem, we'll recognize that there's absolutely nothing that man can do to solve it on his own. And if there's nothing you do to solve it, then there's nothing you can do to lose it. See, if there's nothing you can do to be saved, then salvation isn't dependent on anything you do before or after And if there's nothing that you can do to be saved, there's nothing you can do to lose that salvation. And what I consistently find is people who think that somehow they can lose their salvation are people who don't take sin seriously enough and the problem of sin in its complexity seriously enough. So they don't understand grace and they don't understand the complexity and the uh, profound depth of what happens at salvation. So we are answering the question, how can we know that we are saved? Well, we're going to focus on these three doctrines. Regeneration, what happens at regeneration to solve spiritual death is radical. It's not just, getting saved isn't just moving from a position which says, well, I'm not going to go to heaven and now I am going to go to heaven. See, what happens at salvation is a radical transformation of who we are. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. There is a radical transformation that takes place for each of us at the instant of salvation. Part of it's regeneration, part of it involves imputation and justification, and part of it involves the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which puts us in Christ. This is such such a radical transformation that it is irreversible. If you really understand what these things are, you know that you can't get saved and then lose it. These are irreversible realities. Okay, let's begin by looking at some Scripture. Some of these are familiar to you. I frequently quote them at the beginning of class because they're profound promises that everybody should have memorized. That's one reason I recite them frequently is that through repetition, perhaps, uh, you'll memorize them. See, I'm a skeptic. I don't think you're going to do a whole lot in terms of going home and just sitting down and putting yourself in a uh, program of self-disciplined Scripture memory. So if I say it over and over and over and over again, that perhaps before long you will uh, memorize it just because you hear it so much. 
1 John 5.13, John gives us one of his purpose statements for the epistle of 1 John. And he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That is, he is, he is addressing them as believers. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. See, right there he is affirming the fact that you can know with certainty that you have eternal life. It's not, it's not guesswork. It's not something that you're just going to uh, assume or something that you can have uh, a, be 50% sure about or 70% sure about, but that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So first, in John's first epistle, he writes that you can know that you have eternal life. Now, before we get much further, let me explain my strategy tonight. We're going to go through a lot of John's writings because John is particularly concerned with expressing what a person needs to do in order to be saved. And we see that in his gospel. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Now the sign that has just occurred in John 20 is the sign of the resurrection. And so he's talking to Thomas, and Thomas has said, Well, I'm not going to believe he rose from the dead until I can put my hand in his side and I can feel the nail prints in his hands. And so then Jesus appears to him, and he immediately said, My Lord and my God. And then John says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So what is he talking about in verse 30? He's talking about signs. He did many other signs. But these, he says in verse 31, these refers to what? But these signs, that is the seven signs of the Gospel of John plus the sign of resurrection, these are written for a purpose, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So the very way he structures the 31st verse is to tell us that there's a reason that I've written this, so that you can believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament uh, prophecies and promises related to the uh, salvation of the Jews and salvation of mankind, and that by believing, you may have life. That's the condition, is simply belief. It's not faith plus works. It's not believing and then living a good life afterwards, believing and avoiding certain sins afterwards, believing and engaging in ritual. It's just simply that act of believing, of trusting in Jesus Christ. The Greek word for faith is the word or the verb pistuo, and it seems it means simply to believe something, to trust something. And that's all that's involved in salvation is simply trusting. And that is what John hits again and again and again as we go through his gospel. So let's look at some of those statements that John makes. Early on, he says in verse 18 of John chapter 3, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now he starts this verse off and he says, He who believes. Now that's a pretty good translation of a Greek present active participle. Now the thing about a present active participle, if we get into the grammar of it, is that some people want to translate a present, anytime they see that present tense marker, they want to translate that as if it's an ongoing action. So you'll find some folks every now and then will try to say, you see, it's the person who continues to believe in him. It's not just a one-shot decision. Well, that's a real indication that that person doesn't understand anything about Greek grammar and certainly doesn't even understand anything about uh, English grammar either. The phrase, he who believes, accurately translates a Greek present participle that has an article with it. And whenever you have an article with a present part—I mean, with a participle—it can either function as an adjective or it can function as a noun. And in John's writing, it's very, very uh, consistent. In his writing, he uses uh, these kinds of participles as nouns. It doesn't have a verbal idea at all. Now, that's the. This week, I'm going out to California. And I go out every year the first week of October to teach at a conference called the WHW Conference. And for those of you who, who don't know what that refers to, it's the initial, I mean, it's the initials of the three men who founded this conference. And it was founded back in the early 90s to uh, provide a week-long training conference for uh, pastors and for laymen in studying the Word of God and giving them a uh, a vision for doing more in-depth study in the Word. And so my, I got involved about eight years ago, and my role is to go out and teach uh, these pastors rudimentary elements of grammar and exegesis. And so this is one thing I always emphasize is participles. We have to understand the, the role of, of a participle. And if it has an article, it functions like an adjective. And if it doesn't have an article, it functions like a verb. It's, it's adverbial. So you just have these two options. And so whenever you have that article, it just functions like a noun. In other words, you could translate this, the believer, and you would be completely accurate. The believer in him, the one who believes in him, it's, a, it's just talking about that act of belief. The one who believes in him is not condemned. It is a... Uh, again, you have a uh, present passive uh, verb there. He is not condemned. He does not receive condemnation because he doesn't believe. See, it's very clear in the text that the only issue for condemnation or salvation is this issue of belief. The one who believes is not condemned. The one who doesn't believe is already condemned. We are born condemned because of Adam's original sin. Not because of your sin, but because of Adam's original sin. You are a, uh, you sin because you're born a sinner with a sin nature under condemnation. And so there's nothing you can do that's going to have any value for God. Uh, it's going to impress God. And so the only thing that's going to impress God is what Christ did on the cross. So if you trust in Christ, then there is salvation. So it's simply a matter of what you're trusting in. He, he who believes in Him... That is, Jesus Christ is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name 
of the only begotten Son of God. Now, the one who believes is not condemned. This is reinforced in Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you believe in Christ as your Savior, at that instant the Scripture says you are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, Romans 6.3. That is what we, is also referred to as the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. So if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. No matter what you do, no matter what sin you commit, there is no condemnation because the condemnation has been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. From top to bottom, inside and out, you are a new creature in Christ. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. A radical thing has happened. There has been a transfer that has taken place. And this is seen in our next verse in the Gospel of John, John 5.24. John says, Most assuredly, I say to you, my I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. The, again, we have a present participle, and it doesn't mean perpetual action. There are numerous examples in the New Testament of where present participles refer to just a, a singular incident of doing something. For example, drinking water in John 14, uh, 13. Uh, the birth of Christ is referred to as a, with a present participle in John uh, 6.33, John 6.41-42, that whole section. Uh, present participles uh, often refer to just a singular action at a moment in time. So what John is saying here is the one who believes in him has with certainty. It's his possession. The Greek verb echo indicates holding on to something. He has everlasting life. And shall not, that's the promise. He shall not come into judgment. He's not condemned. He shall not come into judgment, but has passed. It's over with. It's a completed action. He has passed from death into life. This is the foundation for life that we are studying in this series. The only prerequisite to avoid condemnation is trust in Christ. Furthermore, Jesus says in John 6:37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, that is, anyone who believes, John 3.16, whosoever will, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. He will not, if you come to him, no matter what you do after that, he will not cast you out. Salvation is a permanent reality. We know from other passages in Scripture that at the instant you believe in Christ, you become a part of God's family. You're adopted into the royal family of God, and you're not going to be kicked out. You're not going to be uh, disadopted. You are going to remain in the family. Uh, John 6:39 and 40, Jesus goes on to say, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose Nothing. You see, it is God's unbreakable will that of those who he gives to Jesus, and those are the, anyone who believes in Christ as Savior, that Jesus will lose nothing. God's sovereign will guarantees and keeps us so that none will be lost, 
but all will be raised up at the last day. And Jesus goes on to expand this in case you didn't get it the first time. And this is the will of him who sent me, in verse 40, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. That phrase, sees the Son, is an idiom for understanding who he is and what he did on the cross. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. It doesn't say everyone who believes in him and maintains a moral lifestyle. It doesn't say everyone who believes in him and continues to believe in him. It doesn't say in everyone who believes in him and constantly uh, maintains his Christian life. It's once saved, always saved. Once you trust in Christ, you cannot do anything to lose that salvation. You didn't get any, do anything to get it. You can't do anything to lose it. And trust me, when you listen to somebody, some person on the television or some other uh, Bible teacher, and they say, well, there's something you can do to lose your salvation, there's works hiding in their gospel. You may not see it right away, but there's always works lurking somewhere. If you can do something to lose your salvation, then by implication... There is something you're trying to do to get that salvation. And you don't have a grace gospel. John 10, 27 to 29 is another promise, tremendous promise, that Jesus keeps us. He is the one who is holding on to us. We're not the ones holding on to our salvation. He is the one who keeps us saved. Jesus said in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. It's an unconditional gift. It is based upon grace. Grace means a free gift. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. There is nothing that any human being, including yourself, can do to get out of the grasp of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say that it's not merely that he is holding on to us with his grasp, But he says in verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. We have Jesus holding on to us, and the Father is holding on to us, and and either one of those grips can't be broken, but there's a double grip, and it's unbreakable. We can't do anything to lose our salvation. Furthermore, we have passages such as Romans 8:35, 36, and 37. This entire section of Romans is a reiteration of the certainty of our salvation. This is the promise of God. God's promise is unbreakable. It's not conditional. It's based on the one who is infallible, the one who is immutable. Romans 8.35 reads, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In other words, is there anything, anything in creation, anything anyone can do that can separate you from the love of Christ once you're saved? Can tribulation, adversity, hardship, difficulty, distress, or persecution do that? Or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? In other words, he goes through a list of various types of of hardship and difficulty and adversity, and his conclusion is nothing. He says, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That is, the believer is 
to expect a certain amount of adversity in life. Yet in verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We have victory over the, any difficulty in life. And then in verse 38 and 39, Paul concludes, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, that is, whether you live or whether you die, that can't affect your eternal disposition. Nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. Now these are three different terms to refer to angelic beings and demonic hierarchies. There's nothing any angel can do. There's nothing any demon can do to affect your eternal salvation. Nor things present, nor things to come. That is, anything that could happen today, and there's nothing that can happen in the future. Nor height, nor depth nor any other created thing, no matter what you think of within any parameter, there's nothing that man can come up with that is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That love that God has was demonstrated to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for each of us when we were the most obnoxious we could possibly be. We were fallen sinners. We were completely hostile to God at enmity with Him, the Scripture says, and our righteousness was as filthy rags. So if there was nothing pleasing about us and He loved us so much that He sent His Son to die for us, then He's going to give us a salvation that is not dependent on anything that we do. In other words, you can't come along and create and do something more obnoxious than you already were when you were saved. God's purposes and salvation cannot be overridden. And then one of my favorite promises is at the end of the short book of Jude. Notice it says on the, on the screen, Jude 1.24. There are several books in the Bible that only have one chapter, Philemon, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. But in these computer programs, I guess the computers can't figure that out, so they have to put a one in there. And every now and then I run into somebody when I just mention Jude 24, 2 John 5. They say, well, what verse is it? And that's always a dead giveaway. They haven't been reading their Bible. Jude verse 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He is the one who keeps us, not ourselves. It's not dependent on who we are. It's not dependent on our character. It's not dependent on avoiding any sins. It is God in His grace who keeps us. And He is the one who will present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. Now, those are just some of the wonderful promises, wonderful uh, promises that God has given us related to our eternal security. But let's think a little more profoundly about this. Let's think about what happens at salvation, some of the doctrinal Uh, things that take place. We've looked at salvation. We put the chart of the barrier up when when I began this evening and talked about the fact that at salvation there are certain things that happen to us when we put our faith alone in Christ alone. There is the imputation of righteousness. There is the declaration that after we receive the righteousness of Christ, we are declared just. There is regeneration that takes place. And then there's our identification with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. We're placed in Christ with the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. 
and that is our new position in Christ. Now, when we think about what happens, the transaction that takes place on God's part for us in each of those activities, we begin to realize that to even think that we can do something to reverse our salvation completely denies the reality of those events. For example, if you think that you can do something to cause God to take away your salvation, you have a diluted concept of imputation. Romans 8:33 and 34 says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? In other words, who can bring a charge against you? God is the one who justifies, not you. What's the basis for justification? It goes on to say in verse 34, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. In other words, what this verse is pointing out is that it's not your righteousness at all that's the basis for salvation. It never was. So since it's not your righteousness that's the basis for salvation, it doesn't matter what sin you commit after salvation, you're still saved. See, at the instant of salvation, you were given Christ's righteousness. That's the basis for justification, not what you've done. So if you commit any sin afterward, it doesn't affect that righteousness that's the basis for justification because it's not yours to begin with. So imputation teaches that Christ's righteousness is the basis for our salvation. The doctrine of justification by faith alone says that you are justified because you possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. And then when we look at the doctrine of regeneration, we realize that everything about us is overhauled. We, God creates a new human spirit and imputes that to us. And to say that you can lose your salvation would be to say that God is now going to take away that human spirit you would become spiritually dead again. And this is an irreversible process. Once you are made alive, you cannot, you cannot lose it. So what happens at salvation is so total, so overwhelming, so radical, that if you truly understand the nature of imputation, justification, regeneration, you know they can't be reversed. And then beyond that, there is our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Once that identification takes place, salvation is complete. Once that identification takes place, the sins are all paid for. Every single sin we will ever commit. And that takes us to our next doctrinal argument. The first is the depth and profoundity of our salvation. The second is the essence of God. Think about the omniscience of God. He knows all the knowable. Because God knows everything past, present, and future. He knows every single sin that you and I will ever commit. He's going to be able to put all of those sins, impute all of those sins to the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't leave one out. He doesn't forget one. He puts all of them on the Lord Jesus Christ so that Jesus Christ is able to pay for every single sin that we commit. So because of God's omniscience, he's not going to leave out a sin. And because of God's omnipotence, his power, he is able to impute all of those sins to the Lord Jesus Christ. God's omnipotence means that his power is greater than our power. 
His power is greater than our sin, and so He is able to impute every sin in human history to the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is able then to keep us saved no matter what we do, because it never was dependent upon us. So we have promises such as Hebrews 7.25. Hence also He is able to save forever. This is His omnipotence. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. This is Jesus Christ who keeps us and who constantly intercedes for us even as when we sin. 1 Peter 1, 4, and 5, We're able to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away no matter what we do. Reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. We're not protected by our power, our positive volition, our obedience. We're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul says, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him. It's not up to us. It is the Lord who does it. And then in John 17:11 to 16, we see the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. This prayer was prayed historically before the Lord ascended to heaven, before the crucifixion, in fact. But it is consistent with his ongoing prayer on our behalf. In verse 11 of John 17, he says, And I am no more in the world. Yet they themselves are in the world, that is, the disciples and all believers. They themselves are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name. Now, Jesus is praying to the Father continuously that the Father will keep us. And the Father answers the Son's prayer. So the Son prays that he, we will be kept. John 17:12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. See, that's Judas Iscariot. He's called the son of perdition. The Greek word for perdition is apolumi. It's the same word used in John 3.16 for those who perish. He is the son of perdition, and he was never saved. John 17.13, But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world was, has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. The God the Father keeps us continually because of the prayer of the Son. And then, so we've looked at the salvation package, we've looked at the character of God, we've looked at the prayer of the Son, and then fourth, the character of God. It means that He keeps His promises. He's faithful. 2 Timothy 2, 11-13 says, Faithful is the word. This is a, a, a faithful saying, a, a true saying. And then we have the, uh, a, a statement in poetry. Paul says, If we died with him, and we have, it's a first-class condition, if you trusted Christ as Savior, you were positional, you're, you're identified with him, we shall, if we died with him, we shall 
live with him. Looks like we lost a word in the transfer. We, if we died with him, we shall live with him. If we endure, that is in suffering for blessing, we shall rule with him. If we deny him, see this is where eternal security comes in. If we deny him, if you reject Christ, he will deny us. And that's a loss of rewards. But if we, and then the last statement is the one we want to focus on. If we are unfaithful, that is if we are disbelieving and faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He will never desert us. He will never leave us or forsake us. And then finally, we know from two key passages that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says, In whom, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, when you believed, you were also sealed by means of the Holy Spirit. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is probably uh, something that is most like what we Texans know of as branding cattle. It is putting the sign of ownership on us. And that's what that concept of sealing refers to. It's interesting, back in the old days, in the rustler days of the Old West, sometimes you would get uh, rustlers out on the range and they'd have a what they'd call a running iron. Sometimes they'd take a, a cinch ring off their saddle and they'd heat that in the fire and they would counterfeit uh, a, a brand on a cow. And they would take a, a brand that was already there and then they would impose another brand over it. And so there were times when it didn't look as if that cow was the original owner's. It's got a different brand on it. And that's true for believers sometimes. We're sealed by the Spirit, but sometimes you continue in carnality and it's not too clear from your life that you're a believer. So, so when you die, you go to heaven. See, that what would happen in the Old West is they'd have to kill that cow, and then they'd skin it out, and when you took the, the, the hide and reversed it, you could see what had been happened, that another brand had been imposed over the original brand. So it wasn't until death that you could identify who the real owner was. And that's true for some carnal Christians. Their life doesn't reflect the fact that they're uh, sealed by the Spirit, but when they die, the real owner will become apparent and that seal will become obvious. Ephesians 4.30, stop grieving the Holy Spirit of God. See, we can sin and grieve the Holy Spirit. That's a figure of speech indicating how we are violating the righteous standard of God. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed to the day of redemption. That sealing takes place until the day of redemption. It cannot be lost. Our salvation is not something that is brought about by our works, by our efforts, by our wonderful personalities. It's brought about by the work of God. We are saved through faith, not because of faith. We are saved through faith, and when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, then at that instant, God the Father saves us. He imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. He declares us justified. He regenerates us. And he identifies us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. This entire package is so great and so profound that it can never be reversed. That doesn't mean that you, can take, you should take advantage of it and just go do whatever you want to because we're saved for a purpose and that is to mature in our Christian life, to be prepared to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the future millennial kingdom. 
But we have a certainty that no matter how we fail, no matter what we do, no matter what sins we may commit, we can never lose our salvation. It is secure for eternity. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we have a sure and certain knowledge of our salvation. That we can know today, right now, that we have eternal life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of morality. It's not a matter of ritual or religious experience. It is simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And this is a salvation that can never be taken from you, a salvation that is not dependent upon who you are or what you do. It is dependent upon the almighty power of an omnipotent God who, paid, who provided a salvation and a payment for your sin that took care of every single sin. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the truths that we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now remember, we're going to have a brief uh, update on this situation related to the new property. So Doug's going to come up, Doug Daly's going to come up and give us a report. Is this on? Yes, it is. Good. Uh, before we start on that, I'd just like to uh, ask you if you would like to be notified when we're not going to have class or if something comes up and your name, you haven't given your name and telephone number to us yet. Please do so. There's a list up here on the side table that you can do that. Um, I understand that last Sunday night there was someone that showed up here not realizing there wasn't Bible class. So if we have your name and your telephone number, your email, we can get that word to you. Well, as Robbie mentioned, we were going to talk about the uh, property situation tonight. Um, five weeks from today, if all goes according to plan, it will. We'll be in our new place. We have signed the lease. In fact, we did that right before Bible class tonight. Um, so that, now that that's in place, then there's a number of things that can begin to happen pretty quickly. I'd like to just uh, update you tonight, first of all, on the finances, and then I'll turn it over to Doug, who will uh, give us uh, a briefing on where we stand with the property and some of the things that are going to be happening. And then at the end of our little talk here, We'd like to open up for question and answer for anybody that has uh, questions. Uh, first of all, just um, uh, like to bring you up to date from our last congregational meeting, which was, I think, August 21st, somewhere along in there. And at that meeting, you'll recall, we talked about the financial situation, um, how much we estimated it was going to cost for the build-out, for the startup expenses, and so forth. And at that time, I mentioned that we have a property reserve fund, uh, which is about $20,000, which was money that was set aside from the church accounts for this. Well, since that time, that has grown to about $40,000 through a combination of some donations. Um, our 
revenue exceeding our expenses and so forth. So I just wanted to bring that good piece of news to you. Um, another financial issue is that, um, as you'll hear from Doug, there is an additional expense involved, which we didn't anticipate, and that is that we're going to be paying two months' rent up front for the security instead of one month, as we had said. So that increases our expenses for the build-out and start-up by about $5,000. Um, so that really is all I have from a financial perspective. Just kind of want to keep you up to date with that. And with that, I'll turn it over to Doug and let you uh, let him tell us what's going on with the property. Okay. As, uh, as Doug said, uh, this evening we did sign the lease. And... Uh, the previous tenant is out, so the space is vacant, and uh, a few technicalities as far as getting some drawings together, uh, some additional drawings. We have our architect uh, currently working on the plans, and as soon as we have that ready to go, um, Alan Westfall is a contractor and has volunteered to uh, basically act as our general contractor for building the space out. And I uh, appreciate that. That is a lot of work. And uh, so we hope to get him started very quickly on, uh, on the build-out. And uh, as Doug mentioned, the, the one thing in negotiating our lease, the one thing that did come down is um, the manager, management company uh, insisted on either uh, somebody providing a personal guarantee, which we declined to do, we don't, we don't think that's the right thing for any of us to do, is to provide a personal guarantee. Uh, in lieu of that, what they asked for was a second month's, rent, uh, second month's deposit, basically. Uh, so that, that does increase our deposit uh, by about $5,000, which we will get back. It's refundable at the end of the lease. Um, we had asked for a first right of, of refusal on some additional space that was directly across the parking lot. Uh, they declined to give us an actual first right of refusal, but the space is available, and if we should ever decide, we do have a, a clause in the lease that allows us to expand into other space if we want. So uh, that a little technicality, but, uh, but that's handled. Uh, they are specifically, a question had come up previously about the uh, air conditioning and heating systems, uh, that that can be a big expense. We are responsible for for maintaining our own, our own heating and air conditioning systems. However, uh, per the lease, they have agreed to have the existing uh, HVAC systems completely inspected and serviced, and they're, they're going to warranty it for the first six months, which uh, gives us a little bit uh, better feeling about, uh, about going in without having much history with their system. Um, as I mentioned, Alan is going to act as our general contractor, and uh, we have have a pretty good working plan. Alan has visited the space with some of his subcontractors and basically just pending uh, the signing of the lease and the completion of our, uh, of our drawings, uh, we're ready to get started, get a permit, and get going. And uh, I think that our goal is, is uh, early November that we're going to be in having services in the new space. Uh, in fact, I think we're, we're shooting for November 6th. That's a Sunday morning as our, as our initial meeting. We'll keep you updated on that one as we, as we get a little closer. Basically, there, there's a lot of work that has to happen between now and then. Uh, a lot of it Alan's going to be doing, but there's a lot of work that all the rest of us can be doing. Um, 
have uh, we have met and, and gotten together some lists of, of different items that we need. I need to compile that list, and we're going to make that list public for, for any of you that would like to see it, um, that if you have items that are on this list, whether they're serving tables for the kitchen or whether, you know, just, just various items, uh, if, if anybody has any of those items or would like to get those items, uh, you know, and donate them to the church, it, it would be very welcome. Uh, but I'm going to make that list public here hopefully in the next week or so where, where you can start looking at that and, and we can start gathering things and anything we may not have to buy uh, will be uh, you know, more money that stays in our account that can go toward all the rest of the, the things that we, we do have to buy. Um, basically, I think that's it. We, just, we really wanted to update everybody on, on uh, the progress and um, there has been some behind the scenes <laughs> Negotiations, I can assure you, on this lease, and and we're we're actually very happy to be where we are tonight uh, with the lease in place. I can tell you a couple of times I wasn't quite sure we were going to get there. So, uh, uh, Robbie, did you have anything that you wanted to put out? We'd be happy to take any questions from anybody that uh, that has questions at this point. Yes, sir. I don't know if we're going to have a tailgate. Anybody have any, any questions at all? I did drive by the property on Friday evening about 5.30 on the way home from work, and their sign is down, so they're gone. So we'll be the next tenants there. Jack's got you. Along with the list of items that are needed, are you going to have a list of uh, services that we need to provide? Do we need to start signing up to help with things yet? Or yes, and the and the one I can specifically think of is is janitorial service. And and for the time being, our intention is that I think we're going to internally try and handle keeping keeping the space kept up and clean. And at some point in time prior to getting in, I think. Know, we will we will try and and arrive at a at a person to head that up and a group that that can do those kind of things on a on a rotating basis. So one person doesn't always have to do that. Uh, but I think that's something that that we would definitely uh, are, are looking into. And if there is anybody that would that would really like to head that that effort up, we would love to hear from you. Uh, and if also, if you're just interested in, uh, in volunteering some time to, to serve in that capacity, we'd love to hear from you. But yeah, there, there's going to be several different things that, that we're going to need to, to uh, look into as far as ongoing operations with the new space. I came from a uh, small church in Peoria where we met in an a, uh, office space, and basically we would rotate a family you know, would take the, the cleanup for every, for every month or something like that. We don't necessarily have to do something like that. But, you know, there, there are ways to do that. So that's a, a good point. The other thing, Laura, is um, as far as services go, we are going to be looking at security, uh, continuing that, because apparently they have a patrol that goes through there, but it's kind of random. It's not a – and then we're also looking at some things that have to do with insurance. Yes. 
please try to remember to fill these things out on this table before or after class so we know how to contact each other if you're interested in serving in some capacity. This is the best way to do it. Right. Yeah, Laura's list, she's got it categorized by different uh, areas that people are involved in. And it's uh, she's trying to compile a, a one list where we have all of that. So uh, if you would please take a look at that. That also is going to be up here on the side table. And I guess you'll put that out every time we meet. So it's, yeah. Okay. Other questions? There's a lot to think about. And um, like Doug said, he's going to put a list out of equipment kinds of things that we're going to need. But, you know, if there's stuff that you think of, because this is our first time doing this too, so if there's things that you think of, please uh, let one of us know, Alan or, or Doug or myself or Bruce, uh, Morgan, uh, because there is a lot, lot that needs to happen with this to make it work. Our big concern, first of all, is to get into place and be able to function with Bible class and then uh, go from there. If anybody has specific talents and interests that they, uh, that they have that they'd like to, to volunteer some time, for example, uh, Morgan is uh, heading up getting our pulpit constructed. We're basically going to just customize our pulpit uh, to, to Robbie's needs and the, and the needs of the space, things like that. He's, you know, Morgan is going to head that effort up, but he's out of town quite a bit, and he can use some help. So just any of those type of things that you can think of, if you have hobbies or interests or, or any area of expertise that you'd like to, to volunteer and offer, Please just let any of us know, and we'll, we'll get you involved. We would love to have involvement from as many as we can. Any other questions? No, I think that's it. We don't want to keep everybody. Thanks for your time. Robbie, anything? Or you?